Why don't we open our Bibles to James chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27. James 1, 26 and 27. We're going to finally, Lord willing, finish James chapter 1 this morning. I'm reminded, uh, we were reminded as elders of a quote from Charles Spurgeon when he said that it was by perseverance that the snail made it to the ark. And uh, it's by perseverance that we're going to finally finish James chapter 1. And uh, we'll pick up the pace a little bit uh, moving on from this week. But James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, you'll find the reading on page 1011 of your church Bibles. This is what James says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's Word. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You with the understanding that because Jesus has laid down His life in our place, the strife is over. That you call yourself the Father of all those who through faith in Jesus come seeking your forgiveness and adoption in his name. We thank you that you have placed within us the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of adoption so that we might not only know but understand and be transformed by the depth of your love for us in Christ. And it's our prayer this morning that as we open the Bible and as we hear from your word and as it yet again cuts into the very core of our beings and examines our thoughts and our intentions, we pray that you would give us receptive hearts and that you would transform us further into the image of Jesus. We pray that he would be glorified in our midst and that you would receive all of the praise. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. Christianity is about a relationship and not a religion. I wonder if you've heard either of those phrases. I think that if we're being honest with ourselves, the word religion has fallen out of favor in our culture. And if you have heard the word religion recently, it was probably in one of those two contexts. It really all depends on who you were speaking with. So if you're talking to somebody who isn't a believer in Jesus, hasn't received his grace and been forgiven of their sins, they may say to you, well, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And what they mean by that on the ground level is that They like the idea of spirituality, but they don't have any confidence in the structures or institutions of organized religion. I like the idea of prayer and meditation and service, but the idea of dedicating a time in a dedicated place with a group of specific people to practice my spirituality has no appeal. Being accountable to leaders who actually make decisions, well, that's actually ridiculous. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. On the other hand, if you are speaking to a Christian person, you may have heard, as it's popular to say, that Christianity is about a relationship, but not about a religion. I can remember being a young convert at at, uh, the University of Akron's campus in a college ministry that concluded with all the students singing and dancing 
to REM's Losing My Religion. It was the first time I was confronted that we Christians are a strange bunch. Now, the sentiment behind that idea is spot on. There's a sort of a concern to keep Christianity from being misunderstood as yet another religion by which we have to earn our favor with God. But for all of our talk about Christianity being a relationship and not a religion, it's not surprising that we become a bit embarrassed when we open up the letter to James and read of religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. There it is in living color in our New Testaments. Religion. And the word religion here means exactly what we would expect it to. It means religion. Worship. James tells us that there is a religion that pleases God. And by contrast, there's a religion that doesn't please God. Are you religious? Simply stated this morning in James's letter, we're being told that Christianity is both about a relationship and a religion. He looks at us and tells us that the nature of our religion reveals the nature of our relationship. Now, it's important that we get this right and, and have it sorted in our minds. James isn't saying that this is another religion by which we earn favor with God. James tells us that this isn't a, rela- a religion that leads to a relationship with Jesus. This is a religion that flows from a relationship with Jesus. If you know Jesus, you will be religious. Now, the structure of the passage in front of us is pretty simple. In, verses, in verse 26, James gives us a picture of bad religion. And in verse 27, he paints for us a picture of good religion. But because the entire text is really meant for us to be able to examine whether our, our, our thoughts of religion are a sham or not, and he gives us these three tests, we're going to kind of hang our thoughts on those. You'll see in the passage that there is one test that has everything to do with our mouths, verse 26. And in verse 27, two tests, one of which deals with the needy and the other which deals with the world. And what James tells us is that if our relationship with Jesus is genuine, we will watch our mouths, we will watch after the needy, and we will watch out for the world. True and pure religion. Firstly, watch your mouth, verse 26. Pretty simple, isn't it? Watch your mouth. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion isn't inadequate, isn't faulty, it is worthless. The word is used in the New Testament to describe the worship of idols. James is saying, whatever you might claim... If you can't control your tongue, you're worshiping a God made in your image. Anyone who does not bridle his tongue, the imagery there of the harness that's placed on the horse's head so that its rider can steer it this way and that. 
James returns to this image in chapter 3, if you just want to fast forward for a moment, chapter 3, verse 3. He says, if we put bits, that's a part of the bridle, into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So James is talking about a guiding of our mouths, keeping our tongues obedient to us. He says this is an index of our relationship with Christ. Now, in days gone by, there were people who used to write sort of biblical treatises in newspapers and magazines, John Newton being one of them. I want to quote him at length as he explains this idea of bridling the tongue. This comes from an essay he once wrote called On the Government of the Tongue. And he says, The man who seems and who desires to be thought religious may have many qualifications to support his claim, which may be valuable and commendable in themselves, and yet are of no avail to the possessor if he bridleth not his tongue. He may have religious knowledge. I mean, of such knowledge as may be acquired in the use of ordinary means. He may have a warm zeal. He may contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. He may be able to talk well on spiritual subjects, to pray with freedom and fervency. Yea, he may be a preacher. How about that? And acquit himself to the satisfaction of sincere Christians. He may be a fair trader, a good neighbor, a kind master, an affectionate husband or parent. He may be free from gross vices and attend constantly upon the ordinances. He's in corporate worship. Will not such a man seem to himself and probably be esteemed by others to be religious? Yet if with all these good properties he does not bridle his tongue, he may be said to want the one thing needful. He deceives his own heart. His religion is vain. Now this has tremendous implications, doesn't it, about the way that we talk, the way that we text, the way that we tweet. But I think if you and I are being honest with ourselves, we would never have assigned such importance to our words. I remember my dad used to always pull me aside. My dad is a wise man. He would always have these little quips that he would give me as I was growing up. And one of the most famous that I'll, I'll never forget was he used to call me alongside of me and say, Mike, you know, if you have the choice of being a thief or a man with an unbridled tongue, and at that point I would always sort of pause and try to work out when exactly I would ever have to make that choice between being a thief or someone who couldn't control his speech. But then he would say, because at least, he, he would say, choose to be a thief because at least the thief can take back what he's stolen. But once a word is spoken, it can never be taken back. Even our best efforts at trying to delete our social media posts have been saved and screenshotted by someone. They exist forever. And we know our words are permanent and powerful, but do they really give evidence about whether or not I know Jesus? I mean, how can that possibly be true? But James continues again in chapter 3, if you want to fast forward yet again, in verses 11 and 12, as James is setting out in fuller measure this idea of the way that we speak, indicating our relationship with the Lord, he says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You see what he's saying? He's saying your mouth will only ever produce what your heart provides. 
He's saying, if you'd like a different sort of turn of phrase, that when I hear your words, I see your heart. Because we will only ever say the things that are within our heart. Jesus Himself, Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Gossip, slander, cursing, ridicule, unkind criticism, all of these things come from within hearts. And the reason that this is such an important index of whether we know Jesus is this. Jesus came not simply to die for our sins. He came in order that the law of God might be written on our hearts so that from within, naturally, we would obey. When I hear your words, I see your heart. This is past week we took Henry to Chipotle and he figured out how to use the fountain drink dispenser. Now he's only allowed to have one thing out of that death machine and that's water, okay? Now you'll know if you try to get water out of a fountain drink dispenser, that's kind of confusing. Water's sort of a, an add-on, it's hidden. It's normally attached to the lemon-lime option. And so the first time Henry goes up to the fountain drink dispenser, he's got his cup in hand, he's got ice in the cup, he goes for the water and he fills his cup with lemonade. Pour the lemonade out, and we start all over again with water. But there was a lesson there for Henry. Henry, this spout will always and only produce lemonade, and this spout will always and only produce pure water. And the only way to change that reality, as much as you might like for it to change, is for those spouts to be connected to a different source. Out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. Jesus came to give us new hearts and to write his law on our hearts so that our speech would be characterized by edifying, faithful, blessing words. Now if you're anything like me, this is a tremendously weighty and convicting thought. And the temptation is for us that in order to fix the way that we speak, we're going to get about the business of trying to fix the way that we speak. And I will tell you from personal experience that you will be able to correct the way that you speak for maybe a day if you're really good. But sooner or later, your heart will reveal the truth about itself from your mouth again and again. So what is the solution? Again, Newton, same essay. Let us think of these things and entreat the Lord to cast the salt of his grace into the fountain of our hearts that the streams of our conversation may be wholesome. Isn't that a sentence? The salt of his grace to the stream of my heart so that my words would be wholesome. The next time you speak, text, or tweet, ask yourself this question. Is this the heart that I desire to show to this person? Watch your mouth. Secondly, watch after the needy. Verse 27, my concern here, my fear is going into this point is that many who would amen thoughts of controlling our tongues would be dreadfully silent. 
as we talk about watching after the needy. James has told us what true religion is by exposing the counterfeit. If I can't control my tongue, my religion is worthless. Verse 27, the flip side, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, your Father's religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Here's James, painting for us a picture of someone who is in affliction, in distress, under pressure. And the obvious and natural and Christian thing for us to do is to seek in some measure to relieve that distress. James says, if you claim to be religious, whatever other evidence you may have, if you are not concerned for the needy, your religion is impure and defiled before God the Father. Now, loved ones, this has always been the case with the God of the Bible. In the context into which James is writing, orphans and widows were the most marginalized of society. Orphans had no money, no way to care for themselves. Widows often couldn't find work. But in our day, we could easily and justifiably expand the list to the homeless, to the disabled, to the refugee. This is not politics. This is biblical Christianity. I want to quote to you at length again, not from John Newton, from someone far greater, from the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 1, 10-17. This is how he comes out of the chute to the people of Israel. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now again, he's talking to the people of God. Listen up, Sodomites. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. Now let's not miss what just happened. God just equated the sin of not looking after the needy with the sin of rampant homosexuality and orgies of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says to his people, you think you've done well because you've avoided the gross sins, but what have you done for the poor and needy? Do not come and worship me if you neglect them. This has always been the case. 
And the reason why this is an index of whether or not we've truly understood the Gospel and truly relate rightly to the Lord Jesus Christ is the same notion that underscores our culture's expression like father, like son. Chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He is His Father's Son. You know, there is this market now which sells clothing in packages, one for the father, one for the child. I have my Father's Day Batman socks on this morning. (laughs) This might be a case of the father wanting to be like the child, but generally speaking, children want to be like their parents. Why would it be any different for us as the children of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would we not want to be like our father, a father who describes himself as God of gods and Lord of lords, Deuteronomy 10. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Watch after the needy, James says. Now this gets worked out in a million different ways. I congratulate many of us in our church. I've heard stories of people cleansing lepers in the Philippines. I'm encouraged by the adoption culture that exists in our church. One of my favorite pieces of mail that I've ever received was a reference for a young couple desiring to be foster parents. Some of us have partnerships with compassion. Many of us feed those who are hungry. Some of us will mow lawns or take meals to widows. But the one thing that will be constant is if I have a relationship with Jesus, my religion will push me outside of the boundaries of our church to serve the least and the left behind. Because here it is, guys. The way that we relate to those on the margins of society is the way that we relate to the King of the universe. The Father to the fatherless. And if you and I have actually understood the Gospel, if we've understood the reality that that one time before Jesus came, I was a spiritual orphan. I had no hope. I was without God in this world. I was wandering in spiritual darkness and decay. And the Father graciously sought me out and He said, by faith in My Son, you are now My child. Before Christ came, I was a spiritual widow with no husband to care for me or love me. And Jesus came with such an amazing and tremendous love that He laid down His life for His bride. This is gospel religion. Watching after the needy. Thirdly, and finally, watch out for the world. Again, verse 27, and we'll have to pick up the pace. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, dot, 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 to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion doesn't express itself only in the way that we speak. It doesn't express itself only in the way that we relate to the needy. It expresses itself in our relationship to the world around us. Now, at one level... The world is the object of God's amazing covenant love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But on the other hand, the world is that system of beliefs and attitudes and behaviors that is completely antithetical to the kingdom of God. 
Do not love the world, 1 John chapter 2. And it only gets more complicated when we begin to think about the way that Jesus envisions our relationship to the world. Doesn't He pray? John 17. He prays for us that we would not be of the world. But at the same time, He says, I do not ask, Father, that You take them, My disciples, out of the world, but that You keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. See, true religion exists in this incredible tension of being sent, but not stained. Of existing in, but not of. Jesus came into the world to love the world, but was never stained by it. And many of us, we we tend to think about worldliness sort of as a disease that we might contract. A sort of a virus that exists out there. When the Bible's picture of worldliness is far more like the the, the virus for shingles. You know, that exists in everybody who's ever had chicken pox. And the disease of worldliness exists within everybody who's ever been infected by sin. That's every one of us in this room. So we've got to work out for ourselves how it is that we might be truly religious by being in the world, sharing the love of Jesus with the world, but without being stained in it. I went to a restaurant with a friend this week. He wore a pristine, pure, white, button-down Oxford, which is a recipe for disaster, yeah? You go in a restaurant like that, you're asking for it. If you go in, we both get a burrito, we both eat the burrito, one of us leaves completely unscathed, The other with a stain all the way down the front of his shirt. There's a way to be in a restaurant without being stained, right? And there's a way of being in the world without being stained as well. What James is advocating here is sort of the culmination of all that he's been saying. And he tells us if you want to keep the world off of you, you've got to keep the word in you. Receive and do the word, James says. See, the only way that I will, I will absolutely turn away from the world's estimation that pride is more valuable than humility, or that self-autonomy is greater than self-sacrifice, or that true freedom doesn't exist in being able to do whatever I want to do, but being able to do whatever I'm commanded to do. The only way that I'll establish in this life that my happiness isn't found in my happiness, it's found in my holiness, is if the Word dwells richly within me. The way to keep ourselves unstained from the world is to keep the Word within us. But once Jesus came, once again, not simply to forgive our sins, He came to give us a new flag to fly. He came to transfer us from the world into His very own kingdom. He did so by the shedding of His blood. And so when you and I find ourselves happening to be stained by the world in the moment, what do we do? We shout it out, don't we? What do you do when you spill coffee on your shirt? You you put it immediately in the wash. And the key to being unstained from the world is when we find worldliness creeping into our lives, we never let the stain set in. 
keep short accounts with God. We confess our sins to him and to one another. We pray for his forgiveness and his grace. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us yet again and again. Until that amazing day when we are born anew in the eternal kingdom, free from the world's influence. Here it is. It's not just the way that we speak. It's not just social justice. It is what many may think is trite and out of fashion or puritanical. It is personal holiness. Are you religious? Boy, do I hope so. Because you know what's common between both of those famous sayings of our culture? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Christianity is about a relationship. It's not about a religion. The thing that those two statements share is this notion that there are no demands. It's the spirit of the world invading the church. There are no demands here. But we know better, don't we? What couple upon getting married, establishes that there will be no demands in this relationship. Stay out as late as you want. Spend time with whomever you want. Spend money however you'd like. That's ridiculous. And we know it. So Christianity is manifestly not simply about a relationship. It is about a religion. A religion that flows from and does not lead to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered these things? Are you religious? Yes, I mean it. Religious. If not, here's the good news. The Father's arms are open wide. Watch your mouth. Watch after the needy. Watch out for the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that you transform the hearts of your people. We thank you that when Jesus resides in the heart of a man, woman, boy, or girl, imperfectly but definitely, there will be a concern to watch our mouths, to watch after the needy, and to watch out for the world. And so it's our prayer this morning that as we consider these things and as we allow the Spirit of God to apply these things to our hearts, we ask that you would continue to transform us so that our hearts would bleed for what your hearts bleed for. We pray that uh, you would encourage those of us who are making a, a good run at these things and that you would encourage us to do even better and do more and more by grace. And we pray that we would be a people marked first and foremost by our relationship with Jesus, but then secondly, and as importantly, as uh, we'd be marked by the religion which flows from a right relationship with you. Lord, we need your help. Please forgive us. Please renew us. Hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.